Welcome to the Desert Life Church podcast. We're so excited you've tuned in to hear our weekend message. From wherever you are listening, we hope you're inspired by this message. You're not sure if Desert Life Church is going to be your church home. We want to say that you are welcome here. You belong here. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you, Haley. I can walk all the way across the other side of the stage for my water. That's awesome. But uh, I want to say um, I'm so glad to see you here this morning. I'm super stoked to be sharing the word. This morning I've been preparing this week. Haley and I and our young family of two kids um, made the trip to Adelaide um, this last week. I wasn't here last weekend uh, because we decided to make an impromptu trip to Adelaide. And I have, we have a 23-month-old because we still do the months, apparently. And we have a three-month-old, is that right? We have a three-month-old. And um, I must say, people were telling us it was going to be an absolute nightmare, but it was actually very pleasant. It was a good drive. They were good kids. And so we are refreshed and relaxed, and I am excited to be sharing the word this morning. Are we good? Awesome. This morning, we are going to continue our series that we've been doing over the last number of weeks. Of course, we've taken a pause over the Christmas holidays. We've had some special event services like our kids' takeover service. But we're going to continue a series that we've been doing over the last number of weeks called The Authority of Jesus. And the series has been an investigation in a trilogy of chapters, Matthew chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, on investigating Jesus's authority, the authority that he walks with, uh, the different things that he does in his short time on earth and his short ministry time. And we are going to continue this morning our series on the authority of Jesus. If you brought your Bibles this morning, we are going to be reading, as I said before, from Matthew, and we're going to be reading from chapter 9. If you didn't bring your Bibles, that's A-OK, because on the screens, we have the scriptures. We have an amazing media team who are going to be displaying the scriptures on the screen. This morning, we are going to be reading from our text, which is Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through to 17. And I'm reading out of the NIV. That's what's going to be up on the screen. Let's read together. It says this. Then John's disciples came and asked him. Now I want you to remember that. That's John's disciples. You see that? It's John's disciples. John's disciples came and asked him, him being Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered and said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment and make the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and then both are preserved. This is our text this morning, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. As we study the behavior and the authority of Jesus in our series, The Authority of Jesus, we see that up until this point, Jesus has continuously redefined the expectations 
of the religious leaders, of John's disciples, as we see here, and the Pharisees. He continues to redefine their expectations. Jesus goes out, and we've seen just over the last couple of chapters in chapter 8 and 9, Jesus goes out and he heals people of the lowest class. He goes out and he forgives sinners. He forgives tax collectors. He forgives just a few verses before the paralytic man. He says, rise, your sins are forgiven and rise up, you are healed. Jesus, a few verses prior to this text here, restores the demon-possessed man. In doing so, Jesus, what he does is he confounds, he confuses, and he twists what the religious leaders expected, what their sense was of the law, and what their sense was of the obligation that Jesus had. There was certain expectations of the Messiah, and Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Though subtly, he did claim to be the Messiah. He did claim to be God. And there were various expectations of somebody who would be the Messiah. The Messiah was to be a king. The Messiah was to overthrow the government. The Messiah was to uh, change everything that had happened, the oppressed Israeli people, the Hebrew people. He was to bring victory. But instead of doing those things, instead of establishing an army, instead of overthrowing the government that was currently at hand, Jesus was found walking in authority and demonstrating the coming of the kingdom of God to the lives of those who least expected it. Our key observation in this series so far is that Jesus was vastly different to anything that the people would have expected him to be, that the people would have expected the Messiah to be. Now, I said before, it was really important to note that the approaching uh, people, the people who came to Jesus with the question were the disciples of John the Baptist. In this instance, the disciples of John the Baptist come and challenge Jesus with the question. It's interesting because I think Jesus is so used to dealing with the Pharisees, he's probably tired of dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees know this. And so this time, Jesus is encountered by John the Baptist's disciples. Now, there's a few things that we should note. The disciples of John the Baptist, they were allies of Jesus. John the Baptist stood out, as we've read before, in the wilderness and said, one is coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to loose. He's talking about Jesus. He clearly identifies that Jesus is the one who comes, whose sandals John was not worthy to loose. So John was an ally of Jesus. The rabbi of the disciples of John had publicly testified to the fact that Jesus was the coming one. So the disciples of John, if they listened, would have understood who Jesus was according to their rabbi. Let's put Matthew chapter 9 back up, verse 14, on the screen. Here it says, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples of John the Baptist here identify, just leave that up there, please, Donna. The disciples of John the Baptist identify two groups of people that they then compare with Jesus's disciples. The first group is we. The John the John's disciples said, how is it that we, John's disciples, fast often. The ministry of John the Baptist was a unique ministry. It was a strict ministry in its character. It had an emphasis on humble repentance. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to jump around a little bit this morning, but Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 to 4, we see how John 
worked through his ministry. It said in those days, John the Baptist came and he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken about through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He had an emphasis. His ministry, his walk, his practice, his religious practice had an emphasis on humility. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wore camel skins and had a leather belt on. He lived out in the wilderness. He called out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He lived a strict religion. He lived a strict way of faith. And no doubt, as disciples do, John's disciples would have then imitated this lifestyle and showed a deep humility in the faith practice. So here we have John's disciples coming and saying, why do we fast? Well, John's disciples had a strict faith adherence and practice. And then John's disciples identify another group of religious leaders and says, and the Pharisees also who fast often. Now, the Pharisees were known for their practice of fasting. In fact, Scripture says that Pharisees fasted at least twice a week, and they gave a tenth of all they had. Luke chapter 18, we see Jesus dialoguing and sharing a parable where then a Pharisee says, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. The Pharisees also adhered to a strict religious practice, but the difference was that the Pharisees did not do it out of a spirit of humble repentance. They often fasted wanting to impress themselves and impress others with their spirituality. We see Jesus talking uh, right before the Lord's Prayer about the manner in which one should pray. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that when you pray, you should do it in quiet. You should go into your closet, close the door, pray in front of you and God, not in front of anybody else. But instead, Jesus identifies the Pharisees, a group of people, the hypocrites he identifies them as, and says, what they do is they go out on the street corners, they pray nice and loud, they use fancy religious jargon. Nobody can understand what they're saying, but everyone's so impressed because of how spiritual they are. Jesus is saying they're not doing it out of heart, they're doing it to impress themselves and to impress others. And that's about praying. Only a few chapters later, only a few verses later, sorry, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, Jesus then begins to talk about fasting. And Jesus says, when you fast, Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching to his disciples. He's talking to a large group of people. There are Pharisees present. No doubt there's John's disciples present. And Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. The exact same principle and idea as the posture that Jesus commanded towards prayer. The Pharisees didn't do it out of a spirit of humble repentance, but they did it to impress. You know, it's interesting to note that the disciples of John the Baptist poised the question to Jesus about the disciples. If we go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not 
They don't point at Jesus. They don't say, you, Jesus, do not. They say, your disciples do not. We understand from Scripture that the disciples of John the Baptist could not possibly know whether the disciples of Jesus fasted. Because of the scripture we read just before, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. They just figure their faces to show others they're fasting. But Jesus says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So the disciples of John are coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we've observed that your disciples do not fast. And Jesus is thinking, well, you shouldn't know whether my disciples fast or not because it's really none of your business. And they don't do it to impress anybody. They keep it to themselves. It's between them and God as an act of worship. Jesus instructed his disciples to keep their fast private, to manage themselves so that they might not appear as though they were fasting. Therefore, it was very unreasonable for the disciples of John to conclude that Jesus did not, Jesus' disciples did not fast. Unlike the behavior of both the Pharisees and the disciples of John, Jesus' disciples did not proclaim their fasts. And furthermore, If Jesus saw it as a personal attack, he himself could have said, well, I went out in the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. I regularly fast. But instead, Jesus avoids seeking that honor, and instead, he keeps it before himself and God in secret. And then furthermore, Jesus comes prepared to answer the question. As we read through scripture, Jesus is not often caught off guard, but he is prepared It's a demonstration of how we should live our lives prepared. You know, it's comforting to know, as as historians have studied ancient literature, sorry, let me backtrack a bit. As historians have studied ancient literature with philosophy and religious texts, it's been regularly determined that teachers, that rabbis, that philosophers, that mentors had an obligation and had to answer for the behavior of their disciples. So when a disciple went astray, that leader, the person, their mentor, had an obligation and had a responsibility to answer for the behavior of their disciples. It's comforting to know that when we face false accusations or when we face accusations and opposition for following Jesus, that Jesus is the one who's on our side and Jesus stands in place for us. But in this instance, the disciples of John are mystified. They don't know and they don't see and they want to know why Jesus's disciples don't fast. Fasting was a key expression of piety in the first century. Faith It was an expectation of holy living. It was strict tradition. It was seen as requirement. There were certain laws surrounding fasting and when it needed to happen. Yet in this account, Jesus and his disciples are not found fasting. When the disciples of John and the Pharisees approach Jesus, Jesus is not found fasting. He's not observed fasting. Him and his disciples are not fasting. They are actually doing the complete opposite. They're found feasting. They're found feasting. You know, context is key. And so we're going to backtrack a bit into Matthew chapter 9, just the passage before verses 9 to 12. They're going to be up on the screen, and it's going to show us what Jesus was doing right before he was approached by the disciples of John. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Jesus had just healed a paralytic man, and then he's moved on from this place. And so he finds a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. He says to him, follow me. Matthew gets up, and he follows him. 
Sometime later, Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house with many tax collectors and sinners. They came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they, they saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus again replies quickly, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call sinners, call the righteous, but sinners. Right before Jesus is found by the disciples of John, he is feasting. The disciples of John come and say, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus is standing there doing the complete opposite of what they expected. He was feasting. As we study the authority of Jesus, we find that much to the dismay of the religious leaders, Jesus constantly is found, as I said before, redefining the expectations of who the Messiah was and what he was supposed to do. He was healing the broken. He was forgiving sinners. He was restoring the demon-possessed. And now we find Jesus dining and celebrating and feasting with his disciples and with tax collectors and with sinners. Now we've seen in weeks prior as we've discussed this series on the authority of Jesus that tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Sinners were the lowest of the low. The religious leaders saw these people as but dirt. They were filthy and the religious leaders hated them. But Jesus instead heals the broken, forgives the sinners, restores them to healing. Religion expected here, we see fasting and deprivation. Religion expected the withdrawal. But Jesus' kingdom has called for feasting and celebration. Now, this is not to say that fasting is not important. Fasting is important, and we've already seen Jesus does fast. The disciples of Jesus do fast. We haven't seen it in Scripture because they don't highlight it. Because really, it's an act of worship between them and God. It's not seen perhaps by the writers as something significant to say, hey, we're fasting now. Everybody take a note. But from scripture, we see that Jesus and his disciples do fast. We also see after Jesus is gone, that the disciples sit down in the book of Acts and they fast on multiple occasions. Jesus in this account is not downplaying the importance of fasting. But what Jesus is doing is highlighting the significance of his presence in the lives of the disciples that were with him and the people that were sitting at the table with him, the tax collectors and the sinners, he was highlighting the significance of his presence and he was celebrating and feasting because it was more beneficial for him to do that while he was with them. Jesus is demonstrating that the kingdom defies religious expectation. And at this point, Jesus returns a reply to the disciples of John to say, you've come to me and asked about my disciples and why they do or don't fast. And now I'm going to give you three illustrations as to why. And the illustration number one is this, the wedding feast. Matthew chapter 9 verse 15 will be up on the screen. Is the first of illustrations Jesus provides as he seeks to answer the question as to why your disciples don't seem to be fasting, Jesus. Jesus answers and says this, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. And we know Jesus is taken away. We see Jesus is taken away and crucified. 
In the first century Israel, there were customs and practices around almost everything that occurred, but particularly with formal celebrations. And one such celebration was a wedding. The first century wedding was a big deal. It was a significant event. Here's some info about first century weddings. A wedding would typically last between five to seven days. Five to seven days. Now, when Haley and I were getting married um, a couple of years ago, three years ago now, was it? (laughs) As you can detect, I'm not great with dates. Don't know how old my kids are. Don't know how long I've been married, but uh, I love my kids and my wife. But When we were getting married, prior prior to when we were getting married, we were working out a budget. We were trying to determine how much everything was going to cost. And I had gone online. Neither Haley and I were particularly wealthy at the time, by any means. And so trying to work out how much a typical wedding would cost. And the average wedding in 2016, I haven't looked up the stats for this year, but the average wedding for 2016 costs upwards of $32,000. $32,000, which is absolutely insane if you ask me. $32,000. I know there are people getting married in the room and they're, yeah. Anyways, we're going to move on. <laughs> but a wedding in first century Israel would have lasted between five and seven days. Our wedding lasted for five hours. Five hours. $32,000. A first century wedding would have lasted between five and seven days. During that time, a number of feasts were to occur around these days, particularly in the evenings. The friends and the guests of the bridegroom were expected to participate in the celebrations of the groom, and they were expected to celebrate joyfully. John chapter 3, verse 29 says this, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine, and it is now complete. The friend of the bridegroom is supposed to be joyful as he spends time with the bridegroom. Because the wedding is such a celebratory event, then fasting was actually reserved for after the wedding celebration. It was improper for there to be a fast during the wedding celebration. So between those five to seven days, the bridegroom, the bride, and the guests of the wedding were expected to participate joyfully within the feasts, within the celebrations of the wedding. It would have been inappropriate for the groomsmen to fast until after the wedding banquet had ended. And so Jesus addresses this question from the disciples of John by clearly displaying an illustration that they understood, something that maybe we perhaps don't understand when we first read this. Jesus is asked, why don't your disciples fast? And then Jesus says, well, the bridegroom celebrates together, and then the bridegroom will go away, and then that's when they'll fast. That's not a super clear picture for us, but the disciples of John see this, and they understand Jesus is saying he is the bridegroom. And while he's here... He's celebrating, and he's feasting together, and he's inviting his guests in, and his guests come from all backgrounds and races and, and, and sinners and tax collectors and disciples and religious people. But Jesus says, while I'm here, I'm going to feast and I'm going to celebrate. I'm not going to neglect that but I want to spend time and celebrate with my guests and with my disciples, with the tax collectors and the sinners, the ones who need a physician, not the ones who don't need 
a physician, the ones who are healthy. The bridegroom, who was Jesus, was still there. Jesus then continued to unravel this question that was offered by the disciples of John. At the heart of the disciples' question was a challenge towards Jesus and his disciples about the adherence to the religious customs and the traditions that John's disciples and the Pharisees relentlessly pursued. Jesus understood this. So what Jesus then continued to do was he continued to illustrate what he meant. And that brings us to the second illustration, the unshrunk cloth on the old garment. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment and make the tear even worse. Now, I'm going to take a poll here in a second, but I have a unique body type. Let's just, let's just leave it there. <laughs> You're allowed to laugh. It's okay. And as a result of the unique body type that I have, it's increasingly difficult to find clothing that fits comfortably, that looks okay, and... Uh, so once every six to 12 months, Haley and I embark on this traumatic experience where I tear an article of clothing, and usually that article of clothing is my favorite pair of shorts or my favorite jeans. Who here has a pair of comfy shorts? Come on, don't be shy. Raise your hand. These are the shorts that as soon as the service is finished, you've connected with those people, you go home, you strip down, and you put your comfy shorts on and sit in front of the TV and watch the cricket. Who has a pair of comfy shorts by raise of hand? Okay. Because of my unique body type, stop laughing. I, as I said, find it difficult to find clothing that I really like, really like the look of, and clothing that's comfortable. And so... I find a pair of comfy shorts and I grow attached to these shorts and I wear them far too often. And then one day, I step into the car or I'm working out. I'm just kidding, I don't work out. <laughs> I do something that causes my comfy shorts to tear. And everyone said, aww. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how much anointing oil I put on those comfy shorts, no, how, no matter how many people I get to pray and intercede for my comfy shorts, the tear can never be fixed. It's continuously made worse. I sit with Haley for hours on end and we try to stitch it up. We put a patch on it. We try to fix it up. To no avail, the shorts are gone. And Jesus says in this illustration that when you put an unshrunk cloth on an old garment, when you try to patch up something that's old, you inevitably will never make it new again. The old way cannot handle the new way is what Jesus says. The old way of religion that is expected by you, the Pharisees, and you, the disciples of John, can never contain my new way, my new way of grace, my new way of restoration, my new way of healing can never be consumed and used in the old way. It has to have 
a new way. Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something that's old. And then Jesus moves on to his third illustration. And that's the illustration of the wineskins. Matthew chapter 9, verse 17 on the screens. Jesus then continues and says, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and then both are preserved. You know, here Jesus likens his own coming, his own ministry, his own message, and the method by which he pursues, and the very kingdom of God itself to new wine, as he concludes this interaction with the disciples of John, and no doubt the Pharisees who are egging on the disciples of John. The wineskins illustration has always been an interesting one to me, not one properly understood. And so what I did as I was preparing is I uh, deeply studied the, the art of winemaking or viticulturalism. And I want to preface this conversation by saying this, I am not at all advocating for the consumption or the abstinence of consuming wine. I am here this morning and just wanting to specifically talk to you about the biblical truth behind what Jesus is saying about the wine and the wineskin and the new wine that he provides. Wine is talked about so much in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, the prophet describes for us the creation of a vineyard which is key in understanding this concept about the new wine in the new wineskin. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 2 says this. It's a song of a vineyard. And the prophet writes, I will sing for the one that I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Remember that, a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and then he planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and then he cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, for the purposes of this illustration, it's not significant whether the fruit was good or bad because the purpose of this song is to illustrate to us the consistency between the archaeological record about first century wine presses and what the Bible says about first century wine presses. Archaeological digs have uncovered hundreds of ancient wine presses throughout Israel. The wine press in Hebrew is known as the word gat. Say gat. Everybody got that? Good. It's the word gat. If you've ever been to Israel or, or if you've ever... I've seen pictures or documentaries or whatever. You've seen that the countryside, it's a land of limestone. It's a land of rock. It's a land of thin soil. It's deserty. It's mountainous. It, there's not a great deal of vegetation. And so the wine presses that are talked about in Isaiah, the prophet's song, are carved out of the limestone bedrock that existed near the vineyards. I've got a diagram that I want to show us up on the screen of the process of creating wine in the old, uh, in the first century and beyond, and what that looked like. 
The first step in the wine creating process is, as we saw from the song of Isaiah, that the vineyard would have been planted near the hillside, and the hillside was largely made of limestone. And the reason that was done is because they would carve buildings, and they would carve wells, and they would carve wine presses into the limestone. And so they planted the vineyard near the hillside, near the limestone, so that they could work as efficiently as possible. What they would do is they would carve out something that looked something like this, you can go onto Google Images, and the images of archaeological digs show images that look just like this. But the process would have been that the farmers or the, the, the people who worked in the vineyards would have grabbed the grapes, would have picked the grapes, would have harvested the vineyard and put them in baskets, and then walked the short distance over towards the wine press. Once they had brought it over to the wine press, they would put the grapes into the shallow area there indicated by number two, and they would stand in it and stomp on the grapes. They would walk on it, they would crush the grapes, and the juice would then begin to flow downhill because these wine presses were created on just a slight slant so that the juice could flow downhill through the channel, which we see indicated at the number three there, and into the fermentation pit. The fermentation pit is then where the wine sat for anywhere up to minutes to hours to days, and that's where the juice would begin to ferment. It was then at some stage, as I said, it could have been minutes, it could have been hours, it could have been days, it would have been collected and put into the wineskins so that it could continue to ferment. The fermentation process that either occurred in the fermentation pit at number four, or inside of the wineskins would have caused the juice to bubble and to froth. The ancient Jews at this time didn't actually understand scientifically what was happening, but through tradition and through being taught, they understood that wine was being made through this process. In fact, it wasn't until the 1860s that the French scientist Louis Pasteur observed fermentation under a microscope. And the fermentation was observed that the moment that the grape was crushed, it, the fermentation began because the juice came in contact with natural yeast that exists on the skin of a grape. And so there was no mixing of anything. There was no process happening. The grapes were crushed. They flowed down through the channel into the fermentation pit, and they we began to ferment because of the natural yeast that existed on the skin of the grapes. The yeast then converted to sugar, converted the sugar in the grapes to alcohol, and released carbon dioxide as a byproduct. And that's important, that the carbon dioxide was released as a byproduct. And so here's the point. When the wine was being created, and you take the new wine from the fermentation pit and put it in a wineskin that was new as well, as it was fermenting, carbon dioxide was released, and the wineskin began to expand because it was an airtight and watertight vessel. It began to expand. However, if you put a new wine that is beginning to ferment into a wineskin that has already expanded, into a wineskin that's already been used, it's already blown up like a balloon, and you fill it up, there's no more elasticity in it. And then as the carbon dioxide is released in the fermentation process, the wineskin bursts because it can no longer stretch. The image of the wineskins makes this exact same point as the unshrunk, the shrunk and unshrunk cloth 
that the new way that Jesus is wanting to introduce cannot be sustained, cannot be handled by the old way. Jesus came, he's saying to the disciples of John and to the Pharisees, to introduce something new, not to patch up something that's old. The band would like to join me, that would be great. You know, these are interesting illustrative metaphors because Jesus is sharing some deep metaphors that these religious leaders would have understood. However, Jesus himself did not select his disciples from a pool of religious leaders, did not select his disciples from people who understood the law, did not select his disciples from the best religious schools or the best backgrounds. The process that was undertaken by the Israeli people, by the Jews, is that when you were of age, you went to a religious school. And as you went through a religious school, if you passed the religious school, you would then go on and you would serve and study under a rabbi. However, if you failed a religious school, you would go on to be a tradesperson. And Jesus' disciples, every single one of them, were tradespeople or tax collectors. None of his disciples were qualified. None of his disciples were trained as religious graduates. He seen Jesus to go for raw and untrained people, people who were moldable, people who were able to receive the new way that he was wanting to bring in. Jesus wasn't looking for what religion could create, but he was looking for what he could create out of everyday normal people. He was looking for people to mold into his kingdom culture. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to finish in a few moments. But as we stand, can we bow our heads? This morning we reflect on a conversation that happens between the disciples of John, people who recognized that their rabbi John recognized Jesus to be the Messiah. And the disciples of John come to Jesus with a question, come to Jesus with an accusation, come to Jesus with a challenge. No doubt the Pharisees were pressuring the disciples of John to approach Jesus with this question. And Jesus responds by saying this, while I'm here, I'm gonna celebrate. While I'm here, I'm gonna feast. While I'm here, I'm gonna connect and I'm gonna make a difference and change lives and transform communities, transform eternities, heal and deliver and restore. And Jesus says, I'm doing something new, something that's never been done before, something that you've never seen before and it's gonna confuse you and it's going to upset you. It's not what you expect, but nonetheless, I'm doing it. And I'm coming with a new way. I'm coming with new wine. I'm not coming to repair something that was torn. I'm actually coming to bring something brand new. I'm not coming to fix what's happening now. I'm coming to bring newness. I have a few questions for us this morning. What has filled our lives? What right now is filling our lives? What has expanded our lives like a wineskin is expanded through the fermentation process? 
What wine have we received that's expanding us? Do we have room in our lives for the message of God's kingdom? Do we have room for expansion for the new wine that Jesus brings? Or are our lives too full of other things? Have we reached our elasticity and we can no longer receive anything else? Are we torn and we can no longer receive anything else? Have we burst and we no longer have room for Jesus' new wine? Has other stuff expanded our lives so that now there's no more room for the kingdom of God? It's a challenging question. You know, like Jesus' disciples, we can often seem to others like we are not equipped, like we're not good enough, like we're not qualified. Jesus' disciples, as I said, were not trained. We're not up on what the current religious practices were. Didn't understand everything there was about the Jewish faith and the practice. May not have even understood the practice of fasting until Jesus came into their world. And sometimes we can seem to others like we're not equipped, like we're not good enough, like we're not holy enough, like we're not religious enough, like we are unqualified. But can we believe this morning that the very presence and the very coming of Jesus in our lives will expand us, will renew us, not repair us, but to make us something brand new? Can we believe that Jesus can equip us that he can make us holy, that he can heal us, that he can bless us, and that he can make us into everything that he's calling us to be, regardless of how difficult the way ahead looks. Will we let the new wine of teaching, of presence, of ministry, and the nature of Jesus fill us up? Will we let the kingdom of God expand our lives? Will we embrace the new way of Jesus instead of being committed to the old way, the way of religion, the way of law, the way of tradition, the way of expectation? This morning, I wanna to talk to two groups of people as we close. This morning, you may have come in the door having never encountered or understood the significance of this person, Jesus, that we talk about who stands in defense of his disciples. This morning, you may have never made a decision that you're going to accept and follow Jesus through your life. You may have this image of who Jesus is or who God is. He stands up in heaven with thunderbolt or a pitchfork and smites you when you sin and, and, and wants you to go to hell and and, and, and hates you, but that is not at all the picture that we see when we read the scriptures. We see the picture of a God who walks in the midst of those who are doing wrong around him. To the least of the least, the tax collectors, who stands with the unqualified and doesn't condemn them and doesn't hate them, but he feasts 
with them and he celebrates with them. And this morning, that may be a revelation to you that the God that we serve is not a God who condemns us, is not a God who hates us, but it's a God who stands and celebrates with us, a God who feasts with us. This morning across this room with every head bowed and every eye closed, I say it like that because this is a moment of privacy, a moment where people can make a decision for the first time or the first time in a long time. And so right across this room with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, if maybe you've never come to know this person, Jesus, who stands with us and celebrates with us and feasts with, and feasts with us and not condemns us, but regardless of what we've done, wants to connect with us. Maybe you've never made that decision that you want to follow that guy. Maybe you have once upon a time, but you've walked away for whatever reason. I want to provide you an opportunity right now in the privacy as every person has their head bowed and eyes closed. If that's you and you want to make that decision for the first time or the first time in a long time, maybe you want to come back. Maybe you feel like you've done something so horrible that Jesus could never love you, can never forgive you. That's absolute rubbish. And that is not the posture of the Savior who feasts and dines and celebrates with us. So if that's you right across this room, I want you to indicate to me that you are making that decision just by raising your hand nice and quickly, looking at me, and then putting your hand down. No one else is looking around. I'm the only person looking around. But this is a private opportunity between you and God, and I'm only here because I want to stand with you and pray with you. So I asked right now, if that's you, I see that hand over there. That's awesome. Is there any other hands? If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand nice and quickly. No one else is looking around. This is just between you and God. I see that hand. That's great. I see that hand. That's awesome. Is there anybody else? I see that hand. Well done. Is there anybody else? I see that hand. That's awesome. Father, we thank you for every single person who stands and recognizes that they need to connect with you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for every person that raised their hands, with hands raised now that acknowledge, yes, I want to stand and feast and celebrate with you, Jesus. I want to live a life that's connected with you. I just pray in Jesus' name that you would just touch their lives, that you'd be with each and every single one of them, that you would encourage them, that you would empower them, would you send your Holy Spirit upon them, Father, that they would know that they are yours and that nothing can separate them from your love. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. With every head still bowed and every eye closed, there's some important reflection points from this morning's message. What's expanded our lives? What is right now expanding and filling up our lives? Is it the kingdom life? Is it what the kingdom brings or is it what the world brings? Is it what religion brings or is it what Jesus brings? Do we right now have room for the message of God's kingdom? Or are we too full with lies and other things that seek to take us away from our connection with Jesus? Has other stuff expanded our lives so much that we no longer have room for God? Father, this morning we ask that you touch each and every single one of our lives. This morning we come, Father, wanting to be made new. 
that you'd pour new wine into us as new wineskin, Father. That you would increase our capacity, Father, as we serve you, as we worship you, as we seek to bring others to come to know you, Father. We ask that you enable us to receive more and more. Father, that we wouldn't burst, but that we would be filled with your new wine. Father, the old wine that consumes our lives, would you take it away from us? The stuff in our lives that's toxic, that takes us away from our focus on you, that takes us away from our relationships, that takes us away from our families. Would you just take that out in Jesus' name? And would you fill us up with new wine? New wine in Jesus' name.